All right, thank you, Hafsabah. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I feel like Jim Carrey in Truman Show. Um, all right, so here's our passage today, and uh, it's an interesting one, and it has a lot of sort of interesting nuances in it. Um, I want to prep you for next week. Um, next week, the great, amazing Lori Beth is going to be preaching. I'm taking a week off because I'm turning 40, and I need a nap. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you, this one person in the room. Um, and so this is my last sermon in my 30s. So here we go. We'll see how it goes. Maybe it'll, and then we can start off with a bang next year. Um, okay, so uh, I'm going to open this up with a word of prayer. And then first thing we're going to do is we're going to get acquainted with the characters in the story. Um, there are two that we need to learn about. Uh, what are we doing here? Let me, I, I like to sort of lay it out where we're going here today. We're going to do that. We're going to talk about Moses and Pharaoh because there's a bit of a thing going on here. Um, literary devices. We're going to talk about discernment, a little tack on to what we talked about last week. And then we're going to talk about how to become a child of the devil. In case you've ever wanted to know that. That's what we're going to talk about. It's in the Bible several times. You should know how to do that so you don't accidentally do that. Um, let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you for this place uh, to gather in. Um, I thank you for all of the, uh, the people that once gathered here, that will gather here again, that are gathered wherever they are at the moment. I thank you for every single one of them. I lift them up to you. Um, I pray that you would watch over them, take care of my brothers and sisters, and uh, sustain us through this time. Guide us as we start to bring everyone back together. Uh, show us how to do it. Give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Prepare us for whatever is coming. Um, thank you, Father. I pray that right now I, I would remember all of the things I studied, that I wouldn't be distracted, that I wouldn't, uh, um, that I would just be present and that I would, I would be able to adequately communicate the things that you've taught me this week so that we can all collectively discern what you have for us together. Thank you, Father, for guiding us this far. Continue to guide us farther. We love you, God. Amen. I'm gonna step over here and grab my, uh, grab my stuff, grab my elements and my uh, water. All right, so let's talk about these characters, shall we? There are two characters in this passage. There's a proconsul, and there is a magician. Um, let's talk about the proconsul first. So this is a um, this is an, a sculpture of sort of a, this is Nero and Seneca, and uh, Nero, was, of course, was the emperor of Rome, um, and Seneca was his advisor. And we're going to talk about why I have this up here in a second, but this is sort of the idea of, of, of what this would look like, these two hanging out together, the proconsul and the magician. So the proconsul, his name in the story is Sergius Paulus, and he's basically equal to a modern-day governor of a state. Um, this is his role. Um, it, it wouldn't have been unusual in that time for governors uh, who are actively ruling to hear about um, traveling itinerant preachers preaching philosophy or religion or whatever, who had gained no notoriety, um, it would not have been unusual for, for them to invite these guys in to meet with the governor so that he could hear their teaching, so that he could hear uh, the philosophy. Um, and it's sort of a way of sort of rewarding those who apparently have some rhetorical skills and who seem to have good honor in the city for the things that they are preaching. And people seem to be listening. And so that's probably, it seems like that's what's happening here. It seems like Paul and Barnabas are building up a bit of a name for themselves in this city with the things that they are teaching. And the proconsul has called them in to hear their message. Uh, the other uh, character in this story is the magician. His name is Bar-Jesus. Now, um, Bar-Jesus is obviously, in case you couldn't tell, a Jewish name. And he has basically, as a Jewish man, risen to the ranks of sort of a, um, 
an advisor to the proconsul. It has to be said that in the ancient world, sometimes today we talk about sorcerers and, and magicians in the ancient world, and we, hear, we read, I mean, it literally calls them a sorcerer in the passage. And we hear that, and we think, well, that's bad. Okay, but in the first century, it didn't have a negative connotation like maybe we're reading into it now. In the first century, a sorcerer in the ancient world isn't necessarily a pejorative idea. To, uh, to the ancient world, these are sort of more akin to like scientific advisors. They would read the stars. They would try to understand the message of the gods and the stars. And they would talk to the, um, uh, the emperor about them. You could see these magi uh, at the very beginning of Matthew. They're reading the stars and they go to see, right, the... the um, King Herod, and they sort of advising him, telling him about what they see, and he's asking his other advisors. This is sort of a role that some people had in the ancient world. They were, it was basically the sciences of their day. They believed that this, the gods were in the sky, sort of communicating about what was going on to us on the earth, and that there was parallel movements on the earth. When you went into battle, you literally believed that the gods in the sky were fighting battle against their gods at the same time. And your victory depended on them, their victory. So these advisors were important. And so they're interpreting the stars, they're sort of talking about gathering up the knowledge of their day. Sometimes they would do little cheap tricks and stuff, and they were regarded as sort of important consultants on both religious and astrological matters, philosophical teachings, stuff like that. So again, this is Nero, and this is Seneca. We still have the writings of Seneca today. I read one of his writings about three weeks ago, a short little letter, and it was fascinating, incredibly smart, wise man. Um, and you could see Herod is, I mean, sorry, Nero is upset about something and Seneca sort of talking him through it. He's got some paper and he's like, look, see, it says right here, you should do this. Um, so this is sort of, a, of what was going on in this story. So what happens is, in this story, here's a bit of an overview. Um, Herod, I'm sorry, I keep saying Herod and I'm probably going to keep saying Herod. The proconsul hears about Paul and Barnabas and the message they're preaching and he calls them in and they come in and he's like, I want to hear your message. And so he starts talking about the message of Jesus and this kingdom of heaven, this new kingdom that God has planted on the earth, um, that there is a new king, his name is Jesus. He is the risen, uh, the crucified, buried, and risen Lord, ascended now to the throne, and this is how he became king. And there is a new kingdom that is now growing and planted and spreading. And they're sort of inviting also the proconsul to be a part of this kingdom. Now, um, the advisor is not having any of this. He's really upset about this. He hears this, and this threatens his very livelihood because he is the advisor to Herod, and he's worked a very long, hard path to get to this point. And so he begins to sort of begin to try to stop the ears of the proconsul um, and convince him that these guys are telling lies, that what they're doing is wrong. And Paul basically turns and looks directly at him and confronts him and apparently blinds him for some temporary amount of time, causing him to like not be able to like move around the room. And he begins to be led by another person. Um, and so the proconsul is very impressed by what he sees, by what he hears, and by the, by the blinding of his advisor. He's like, oh, good job blinding my advisor. And, uh, he's, and so he sort of accepts the message that, that, um, that Paul and Barnabas are bringing to the table. Now, that's the story. Um, this is a classic, uh, for, the, for the ancient reader here, this is a classic prophet versus sort of powerful man story. You see these all through the Bible where the prophets have been sent out and they go with the message of God to the powerful person and they proclaim that message and there's a bit of a, of a, of a battle that ensues, a rhetorical back and forth that, that, uh, that pursues here. There are, there are plenty of stories in the New Testament and the Old Testament about this. Um, from Esther to John the Baptist, a lot of them were killed for doing this, but others managed to do incredible things. Even the ones that were killed sort of What's the old saying? Um, when the king is killed, his reign comes to an end, but when the martyr is killed, his reign 
that's when it begins, kind of thing. Um, so that's basically the role that these prophets kind of played. So Paul and Barnabas walk in there, and they sort of take on the proconsul. So the most famous instance of this sort of thing happening in the Old Testament, um, if you ask any ancient Jewish person, even common modern Jewish person, what's the most ancient sort of famous in your entire story of Israel? What is the most famous story of prophet versus king? And they're going to tell you, oh, it's, it's Moses versus Pharaoh. Um, that is the, the pinnacle story um, that they would tell. Moses is called by the Spirit of God to go to Pharaoh and preach that God has come for his people and he's met by some magicians, sort of same idea. Moses walks in, there's magicians there. He's talking to the Pharaoh. The magicians do some tricks. Moses does some tricks. Um, it's like a magician fight. Um, and he's basically God's people. It ends with God's people being set free against the will of the Pharaoh. He cannot be convinced, and eventually he is convinced just for a second after a tragic thing happens. His people go free, and then he changes his mind really fast, okay? Now, with that story in mind, as the ancient audience were to read this story, um, they would see another common thing that you see all through the book of Acts, which is, we've talked about this several times. It is a retelling of the ancient story as a story now for the church. The book of Acts is filled with taking things that were Israel's and giving them to the church. They gave them, uh, Israel's temple is now the gathering of the church. Remember, Israel's law is now the spirits. Um, uh, the word of God is now Jesus. The, uh, they even have, uh, at the beginning, remember in chapter 12, they receive their own Exodus story where uh, Peter is, is brought out of prison by this angel and it's sort of like the hints of the language are there and like the Red Sea parting the gates open and he walks out and it's sort of like God is doing for the church. He's replaying Israel's story in the way that it was always intended to go because now God's people have their true king which is Jesus. And so as you read this passage and as the ancient readers read this passage what they would see in this passage is sort of a reversal of that battle, that great battle between Herod, I'm sorry, Pharaoh, I did it again, Pharaoh and Moses. This story right here. Um, except with one difference. It's reversed. And I want to show you this. I want to walk you through this so that next time you read the story, it never looks the same. Okay, so let's talk about what's, what's called an inverse parallel, which um, for everything in the Moses story in, in the book of Exodus, um, there is a parallel in the book of Acts but it is inversed, okay? And here's what I mean. It is backwards, it's reversed. God has not come for Israel, but God has now come for the Gentiles. Um, and so before, remember in the Moses story, you have God's people are, in, are enslaved and God wants to set them free and bring them out and give, make them a new people with a new king. And that is happening now, except it's happening for the Gentile and the Jewish people have been sent to rescue now the Gentiles, the Jewish prophet uh, Paul. Um, the next thing in this story, Paul is not confronted by a Gentile magicians, but by an Israelite. The magician in this story, instead of the Gentile magicians that confronted Moses, we now have a Jewish magician confronting God's prophets. Um, you have sort of God's person on the wrong side of the story here. Let's go a little farther. You have, unlike Pharaoh, the governor was open to the message of God. Pharaoh was incredibly closed off. No matter how many plagues came upon him, he would not change his mind. But this guy hears, the proconsul, he hears the message, and he's open to it, okay? Which is interesting, because then you have this. The Israelite is actively working to stop the message of God. And so before, it was the Israelites, that Moses, the Jewish people, actively working to sort of communicate the message to the Gentile Pharaoh to receive it. But now, um, 
you have a Jewish person, a person of God, actively working to stop that message from coming out, from being received. Everything is reversed. The Israelites, not the governor, uh, was, uh, what did I write here? The Israelite, not the governor, was not the one who was plunged into darkness. <laughs> Sorry, screwed that up. Um, remember in the Moses story, Pharaoh ends up being plunged into darkness. That is one of the plagues. He says he can't even see his hand in front of his face. The hand of God covered the sun, as it talks about. And in this story, you have the Jewish magician who goes blind, and even the language that is used, we're going to talk about that in just a second, it's fascinating. Um, the Israelite now has, co- has control over the governor. This, this Jewish magician has control and is sort of leading and guiding the governor, um, and that is sort of the opposite of, of Pharaoh having control of God's people. Everything here is taken and turned upside down, and there's a reason for that. And the last thing I want to show you in this passage is that there is... Um, the very language of this text, it has, it has two particular things that make sure the le- reader knows this is being linked back to the book of Exodus. Um, the language of what's called the hand of God and the light of the sun. Um, these, two, uh, these two phrases recall the exact language of the Exodus accounts uh, of the battle between the prophet Moses and the magicians of Pharaoh. So each facet of this story, uh, of the establishment story of, of the Old Testament, receives now its inverse parallel in the establishment of the church. All of the things that established God's people before are the same things that are now establishing God's people now. As if you scream out to God's people, I am the same God, this is the same work. It was always leading to this, join me, okay? And this particular story is about what happens when you don't, when you try to stop the message from going forward. Now, why would Luke go through all this time and all this work so sort of lay out all of these sort of inverse parallels in this passage. Well, first off, um, there, is, there is something he wants to communicate to you. Two things in particular that he wants to communicate directly to the reader, uh, the early church, the one looking back upon the establishment of the church and trying to grasp what exactly this meant, how exactly this happened, and what was the message for us as God's people. The first thing um, that sort of can be included in the meaning of this, of this literary device is this, that to reject the stereotypes that the reader has inherited or invented about the supposed evil people, okay? So you walk into the scenario and you think you know up front, there's a Jewish man and a Gentile, and as a Jewish reader in the first century, I already know which one's good and which one's bad. I already know which one is on God's side and which one is not, because the Israelites have always been on God's side and the Gentiles have always been against God. But in this moment, the people that we believed were the evil people, it begins to be questioned. Not only that, The exact opposite applies as well. Reject the stereotypes that the reader has inherited and invented about the supposed good people. When you walk into the scenario, you have no idea, really, in the eyes of Luke, it's a bit confusing on who's good and who is evil. And that's on purpose. He's sort of blurring the lines between good people and evil people because the message is that um, God is calling all people equally and collectively to the table to gather together as brothers, not as good people and evil people, but as brothers and sisters in the name of Christ. Now, um, last week we had this sort of conversation, and especially in the after party, here's a plug for that, join us in the after party, 1145, click on the link on our, on our website there and join us there because we talk about all this stuff and it opens up all kinds of questions that we, that we, uh, that we sort of walk through. Um, but last week we talked about communal discernment. We talked about the idea um, of 
of how God speaks to his people. And so go back and listen to that if you need to. But, but last week we talked about the idea of communal discernment um, and how God intends to help his people spiritually discern communally, um, not individually as one body. And one of the hangups that we sort of talked about was that it feels dangerous to allow the body of Christ to, to discern spiritually for you. It's, it feels dangerous. It also sounds dangerous. Like, what if they have the wrong motives? What if... Um, they decide to con- sort of control me? What if they have nefarious ideas about what's gonna happen? What if they're just selfish and, and, and they're gonna make a decision that's gonna benefit themselves? What if this, what if that, what if that? And so it feels really dangerous to allow someone else to sort of discern for you. But I argued um, sort of in our group as we were talking about this, I argued um, that what I feel like is far more dangerous is when a single man with a single viewpoint a single social location, a single view of what God is doing in the church um, makes all the discernment for you. A man who is liable to succumb to the temptations of wealth and fame and power and empire building. In reality, trusting someone else to simply discern as one person for all of us seems far more dangerous when you look at it through that light. Um, then it does, it seems far more dangerous than the body of Christ gathering, being prepared by the spiritual disciplines of fasting and prayer and communion with God, gathering together to discern collectively God's will for us as individuals. Um, There seems to be something far better, far more wise, far more safe, um, uh, far more spirit-led, honestly, um, than the other way that we're very much used to. And I think this has been proven time and time again. A hundred, a hundred ears and a hundred hearts can, can hear and discern the calling of God better than one person ever could. And so like many others throughout history, this man, Bar-Jesus, this Jewish magician advisor, has put himself in a position to advise the king for everyone. And so here we have somebody exercising sort of the solo discernment versus Paul and Barnabas who have gained the wisdom and knowledge of the community. And God has sent them out. And so you have this man declaring for God, uh, declaring to the king the message that God has for the king and trying to stop him from hearing any other thing other than his own message. And obviously this man benefits from keeping the governor from actually hearing the true message of God. And if he financially benefits from this, if he benefits by power and fame, if he benefits at all in this, then he is tainted, then he can no longer be trusted. And that's what we find here. This is why the early church stressed being connected to a spiritual body who can see the situation that you are in, um, who are are cheering you on um, and supporting you through it, unlike the solo leader who simply says, I'm the wise one, I'm the one with all the knowledge, here's exactly what God has for you. And it's sort of, Luke is building a dichotomy between these two ways. And the two that came out of the communal discernments are on the path of God, and they've got the, the community cheering for them, and they've got the, the self-confidence that comes by being, with being backed by a, a communally made decision. And now we can adequately, adequately confront this man who also claims to hear from God, knowing full well that God has spoken to his people and not this man who benefits from the message that he is proclaiming. And so, 
there's all sort of kinds of stuff happening in this passage um, that goes around. And I sort of want to, towards the end of the sermon, I sort of bring all these things together into sort of a message that w- of, uh, of, about what God has, I think, um, for us to ponder and to communally like think about and discern together what does this mean for us. But for a subject change now, perhaps you noticed in verse 9, there is this passage here. And it's really quick, and it flies by, but it has meaning. Uh, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, and I'm not gonna, we're going to talk about what he said a little later. But suddenly you have Saul, who in the blink of an eye, his name changes to Paul. Not only that, uh, this guy, uh, this magician, this sorcerer, also suddenly receives a different name out of nowhere. Um, So you have two name changes at the exact same time in the exact same verse. The question is, why? Why is Luke doing this? What does it mean? Because again, I always stress, there are no accidents in the text. These people were masters. What they were doing was using all kinds of literary devices to communicate to the ancient people in as many ways as they could as many messages about God as they could. So let's talk about that. Oftentimes, um, growing up, I heard people tell the story of Paul, um, of, his, of how before he came to God, his name was Saul. And then when he became a follower of Jesus, he changed his name at that moment and became Paul. And now from, time, from that time forward, he became Paul. And it's his way of sort of putting the past behind him of old things are dead and, and all things are made new. And so he receives a new name. And I even had friends that like, when they became followers of Jesus, they literally changed their name from like their, middle, their first name to their middle name, like Tommy to Preason. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, they, and they changed their name as they moved forward in their faith because of a teaching like this. Now, I get it. I think that's fine. That has nothing to do with what's happening here. Um, and so let's talk about this. Um, notice, Saul is continuously called Saul. He has been a Christian now, a follower of Jesus for over 10 years now. He's been called Saul the entire time. And only now in this one moment is he called Paul and his name will never go back to Saul. For the rest of the writings in the New Testament, he will be called Paul. Um, and there's a reason why. Um, and so let's talk about this. So the camera of the book of Acts has been panned over the entire, Jew- the entire Jewish Christian community. Um, and it has been looking at the whole group as a whole and all the things that they've been doing. At this moment... When it changes from Saul to Paul, the camera zooms in on Paul and Paul alone, and it will follow Paul's journey for the rest of the book. Um, And if you remember the things we talked about, who was Paul's ministry to? It wasn't to everyone. It wasn't to the Jewish people. Paul didn't preach to the Jewish people. Paul preached specifically and only to the Gentiles. Paul believed his mission was to bring Gentiles into the faith. when Paul quotes that, that passage, that prophecy, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel, the good news, um, he's quoting that because he believes that the prophet was talking about him. He's the one with the beautiful feet. He is the one who, who he believes that that passage is about. Okay, we have a hard time with that. Wait, wait, hold on. You can't just claim a passage is specifically about you. He could, and he did, and it's okay. I don't recommend you do it though. Um, now, these are not just ordinary names. Saul becomes Paul. Um, Bar-Jesus becomes Elimus. These are not ordinary names. These over here, first names, are the Jewish names. So let's talk about these names. Wow, that is a slow transition. Are they all going to be like this? Hold on. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Bar-Jesus means son of Joshua. 
the son of Joshua. Like, Joshua was a pretty big name in the ancient world, pretty well-known figure um, in, uh, in the ancient Jewish people's story. It signifies that he belongs to those people, a descendant of Joshua, a well-known leader of God's people. It's, it's a name of honor and privilege and power. It's an identity that he holds and carries with him, and it's awesome. Um, and he becomes, suddenly, in Luke's eyes, Elimus. Elimus means a magician. In this moment, when he stands against the message of Jesus... And he proclaims something else so that he can maintain his power and status and wealth and fame and connection to powerful people. In the moment he does this, he loses his entire identity as one of God's people, as this honorific status of Bar Joshua, of son of Joshua. Now he's, you're a magician. You now are what you do. All of the honor that you carried with you of being one of God's people, it's gone. You have turned against God and his people. And then we look at the next guy, Saul. Saul is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Saul, which means asked for. Okay? Um, it means asked for. Now, there is, I'll throw this out there. It's not in my notes. I'll, I, I shouldn't, but I'm going to throw this out there. Um, the word Saul, he could have just become, kept the name Saul in his Gentile ministry, but Saul in the Gentile ministry literally means uh, soft and feminine. Like that's what it means. And so he literally, his name would have been Mr. Feminine, Mr. Soft and Feminine. And, and that wouldn't have gone over well. He wouldn't have had any sort of respect in the ancient world. And so he doesn't keep that name. And so what he does is he changes his name to Paul, which has a very specific definition. Paul is the Hellenistic word for small. Now, it doesn't mean small in stature. I hear people argue this a lot. Paul means small because Paul's a short guy. They, they didn't call people by descriptors. That's why Paul didn't go with the Greek form of Saul because it, you don't call people descriptors in the Greek world. Um, the reason he goes by Paul is not because he's short or small, although he very well may have been. Uh, it's how he wants to project his image to the world. It is him humbling himself. Why? Well, if you've paid attention to me for a long time, uh, really for any length of time, I've talked about Paul's credentials. Paul was a Pharisee growing up. Um, he was, I mean, his first name means the one asked for. Like, he was a blessing to the community. He was a well-sought-after teacher. He's the head of the Pharisees. High honor, high status, which is all that mattered in the ancient world. And in this high-status position, Everyone looked up to him. Everyone wanted to be just like him. When he talked, people listened. He could speak, and, and you could hear every, the whole city sort of stop when he spoke. But when he met Jesus, all of that changed. When he actually found out who Jesus was, this person he had been persecuting, that it was Christ, that it was God incarnate, who sat on the throne and gave all of that up and entered into the world, not being born into a palace, but a manger. Not being, not being a, a person of status and honor, but a person lowly, who wasn't attractive in any way, who didn't live a life of honor and dignity, and who every time that he seemed to be gaining honor and notoriety, he would say something to offend all the people, and they would turn and leave. And then he would turn to his disciples, and he would say, are you gonna leave too? And the way that he died stripped naked, even his masculinity, the thing that gave you all the power in the ancient world. Jesus on the cross, stripped naked, his beard ripped out. Everything about him that was 
that was honor, that had honor attached to it right down to his maleness was stripped away from him. And so when Paul meets Jesus, Paul, a man of high honor in his world, does the same thing. He realizes that this is how God moves in the world. And so he gives up the idea of the Pharisee. He becomes a Tarshish linen worker, a, uh, a tent maker, which we have documents that prove is the lowest form of work in the city of Tarsus in the ancient world, where he's from. Um, he dumbs down in certain cities the way that he talks to make himself sound lowly and not high of rhetorical skills, even though we know he could preach. But he goes to cities like Corinth, and he talks badly on purpose, making his church really mad because they wanted honor, right? Everything that Paul does exudes humility and a giving up of status and a giving up of honor. Everything that he does. Um, and so let's ponder this. Both men in this story, in Luke's telling of the story, are changed by this confrontation. One of them tries to stay big and powerful and loses his identity in God, and the other makes himself small and humble, and he gains the status of the one who taught the world about Jesus. That is what he becomes. And from this moment forward, he will never be called Saul again. He will always be called small, small Paul. That's what he will always become. And this is, this is when I hear Luke speaking to us. There are times when God's people try to hold on to their power at the expense of the meaning of Jesus. When we lose our identity in God, there are times when Christians strive for power in the world, try to get to the very top. And when we do, what we find is that we are giving up all of the things that Christ called us to be. People who carry a towel and wash the feet of others, not people who sit on the throne and give orders. And Paul's assessment of, the, of, of, this, uh, of this magician, let's read it. He says this, he says, um, hold on a second, is this, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, you, son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of villainy, de de deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the, the straight paths of the Lord? Okay, so, um, what is this? Okay, that's why, it's ESV, I'm like, wait a minute because I'm, I'm sort of trying to quote it from my head. I'm like, why is it different? Because I posted it in the ESV, because the ESV, for once, has a better translation of this passage. Um, it specifically says, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. The NIV says something else. What does it say? It says, you'll never stop perverting the, the right ways of the Lord. That's not right. It's specifically, it's, it's, it's a saying that they would have. It's, it's taking straight roads and intentionally curving them to make them more difficult and harder to travel. Why does he say this? Why does he say you're making the path of God crooked? Why aren't you making straight the path of God? Why does he say this? Well, um, what does this mean? So he was using a phrase which the Jewish people knew well. A great teacher in the ancient world is said to be able to do few things. A great teacher in the ancient world is said to be able to move mountains he is said to be able to take mountains and lay them flat and make them valleys. He is also said, lastly, uh, to be able to take a winding path and make it straight and direct. All of these are not meant to be taken literally. Even, even Jesus says, you will be able uh, to move mountains. Um, he's not being literal. If you have enough faith, you can move mountains. He's not saying, like, you're going to pick up a mountain and throw it into the ocean. What he's saying is, you will be able to remove any obstacle that is in front of someone that keeps them from coming to God. If you have enough faith, enough allegiance to God, 
you will be able to remove every obstacle in the path of people that would normally come to me. And so making the path straight, all this stuff. Um, this, is, this is what this is about. It's, it's about the ways that we put obstacles in the ways of those who might otherwise come to Jesus. And one of the ways is through seeking the power of earthly kingdoms. When God's people try to rule over the world from the top and try to coerce people from the top, we are, we are making the path to God very windy. We are building mountains in people's ways. We are making it very, very hard. And Paul says, when you do this, you are a child of the devil. Paul's not the first person to say this. Jesus literally uses this same idea when he speaks in Matthew chapter, um, what do I, oh, it's slow transition. Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. Peter stops Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, 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 no. You are gonna go to Jerusalem. You're gonna sit on the throne and you are gonna rule. And Jesus turns to Peter and it says, Jesus turned and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You are a child of the devil. The word that he uses for you are sort of, um, you are a hindrance to me, is this Greek word, praskomata. Everyone say, praskomata. Yes, okay, praskomata. It means to literally strike your foot on a stone and to fall down. It even sounds like it means that. Strike your foot on a stone and fall down. Um, and this word praskomata is the word that is regularly used for people who instead of going the path of Jesus of slow humility, of lowliness, of love, of brother at the bottom, of standing with the suffering and the poor, standing with the oppressed and welcoming sort of the immigrant and the stranger, these are the paths of Jesus. When you go up above that, when you try to get to the top and rule from there, you are throwing rocks in the path and making people stumble who would normally see Jesus very clearly. And you're like, well, Jesus is there, but why, why are you here? You talk about Jesus being this and this and this, but when I look at your life, I don't see it. I don't see you living in any kind of way that appears to be the way that this man you claim to worship is. It doesn't make any sense. And Jesus is telling Peter this exact thing. Um, how you become a child of the devil. It's when you, when you talk about a new kingdom and a new world, but when I look at your life, all I see is you grasping for these kingdoms in this world. When you do that, Jesus says, and Paul says, you are becoming a child of the devil. Instead of being the presence of Jesus, the faithful presence of Jesus in the world, you are being the constant enduring presence of Satan in the presence of the world because this is what Satan does. Satan at one point offers Jesus the powers, the, the, the highest positions in the world. And what does Jesus have to do? He has to worship Satan to get it. And so when you chase these things, this is exactly what you're doing. You're not worshiping Jesus. You are a child of Satan. You are Satan in the flesh. You are the presence of Satan in the community instead of the presence of Jesus in the community. Like the exact opposite way. And so in this story, you have this man, Bar-Jesus, this Jewish man who has a calling to be the presence of God in the world. And he says, you, oh, you've done the opposite, my friend. But you, king, would you like to join us? And in this moment, the camera pans. The identity of everyone in the scene flips. The man of God becomes a castaway and just a magician, a member of the high rulings of the world. The proconsul becomes suddenly someone who is grasping and understanding the message of Jesus. And Paul, Saul, becomes Paul, a man who gives up his status 
and will now forever for the rest of his life until the day he is beheaded. He will work for the inclusion of, of those who have always been excluded. In this one scene, it's like a camera filter wipes over and changes every character in the whole scene. That's why everyone gets new names. That's why we are told so much about them. And that's why from this point forward, the camera will follow Paul. And so what does this mean? What do we do with all this? Well, I guess the first question you have when you read this is, is, is how do you become a child of the devil in the eyes of Jesus? And we kind of talked about that. It's when you put roadblocks in front of people who would otherwise walk straight towards Jesus. And you do this with your life. That's how you do this. Standing between Jesus um, and them, you're standing in the way and you're hiding Christ's glory when they are supposed to be able to look at you and see Christ in your life, in your presence. But you instead have hidden Jesus behind your own false portrayal of him. It's when you forsake the simple work of the Spirit when it stands in the way of your power, your income, your comfort, and your fame. That kind of behavior will always work against the very work of God as is portrayed in the, in, in the reversal of sort of the Exodus story here. That is how you become a child of Satan, of the devil, in the eyes of the, of the writers of the text. And when God's people forget the leading and the message of the Spirit of God, you end up with sort of a reversal of the text, what I call an unraveling of the text. The story of God's people in your life being told opposite, being told backwards. And so in all of this, we have to remember as God's people that power is displayed by Jesus, not from the top, but from the bottom, from washing the feet of those who have been traveling, who have been seeking, who have been looking by healing the sick, by welcoming the outcast to your table. This is how the power of Jesus enters into the world. When the body of Christ is broken and poured out, when the, when the blood of Christ flows from us, when we give sacrificially to the world, it brings about their resurrection. And so we must make less of ourselves, as Paul did. We must strive for less power, not more. When we have power and privilege, we must learn to share it with our community and discern together, not by ourselves. Discerning together how to proceed in spiritual matters. Using your power to make others more powerful, not yourself. Not using your power to make yourself wealthy. Using your power to, to give more power to others. Using your privilege, not for yourself, but for the privilege of others to give them more privilege. Sharing your, if you have a stage, if you have a platform, sharing that platform with those who have no platform, who have no stage, and who have never been listened to and have never been given a voice. Sharing it with those people. Humbling yourselves on the side of the Lord so that God can lift you up. It's a constant theme in the text. And all of that is symbolized by the thing that we do every single Sunday um, in communion. And so if you have your communion elements, I'm gonna take a sip. If you have your communion elements, go ahead and grab them. And, uh, and, and prepare them. There are two elements in communion. There's the body of Christ, which on the cross of Calvary was broken and torn apart for you. And there is the, uh, the wine, which symbolizes the blood of Christ, which flowed from seven places on the body of Christ. And in communion, we come to the table, each one of us, bringing what we have, 
Some of you have lived very sort of holy spiritual lives. Some of you have, your lives, quite frankly, have maybe been a wreck and you've struggled your whole life. But when you come to the table of Christ, no matter what you bring, you receive the exact same thing. Forgiveness and love and mercy and grace and peace. And so right now, we do this to remember what Jesus did for us. Knowing full well that this is how salvation actually enters into the world in the first place. The body of Christ, the collective body of Christ in this world, broken and poured out in a display of love, in a display of weakness, taking the sin and the shame of others in this world upon ourselves and not even caring and forgiving all those who are causing the damage in the first place. It is a humble life live from the bottom. May we learn to strive for that so that we can begin to make a fraction of the impact that men like Paul made in this world. And so brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. We have a call like prayer and I would love it if you would join me in saying it. All-knowing God, who has numbered the hairs of our heads. Will you infuse us with your wisdom? Give us the courage to sit in the silence so we can discern your will. Disperse our confusion so we fix our eyes steadfastly on Jesus and follow his example. Thank you all for uh, spending time with us. Continue to pray for us. We're moving towards uh, welcoming people into the room. Uh, Starting next week, there'll be a house church in here. And so... uh, Pray for us as we move forward, and I hope to see you all soon. Grace and peace. Love every one of you.